Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, Book 13, Chapter 12. What do you think of Pierre giving away money in this chapter? Compare him to the Pierre at the beginning of the book when he inherited his fortune. What do you think this is saying about his development as a character? Towards the end of the chapter, Pierre starts to think about his relationship with André and conversations they had. What is your interpretation of their relationship at this point and what do you think Pierre thinks of André? Um... Did I miss something? I feel like... Did they talk about Andre? I'm struggling to remember that. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention. But part of me thinks, is this... Did I put up the wrong discussion prompts? Or did I just completely blank on what happened? Anyway, Twisted Every Way says this. The absence of choice has inspired Pierre. You know how they say that you'll be happier if you go to the store and see only three shampoos to choose from rather than 23? That more options seems better until it causes decision fatigue. That is Pierre right now. Prisoners aren't working, don't have to make food, I assume, choose what to wear every day, etc. All of that is decided for him. He's just the cog in the machine of which Tolstoy likes to speak so often. <laughs> FDLP makes a good point. FDLP1, sorry, says 23 shampoos. Pierre may well be content with just one shampoo to deal with his newfound lice. I reckon you're probably right. But I do see twisted every way your point. Um, and I think that's kind of a bit of a documented thing about like, um, to a degree we like to have some things kind of prescribed and dictated even to us, you know, we kind of, sometimes we like to just have a uniform that we can put on every day. I mean, too much of anything, right? Um... Because surely, after a bit of that, you're going to want to doll up a little bit. I've been feeling that recently with the lockdown, where it doesn't matter what I wear every day. So I just, you know, wear a t-shirt and shorts or tracky pants, whatever. You know, sweatpants, as Americans call them. We call them tracksuit pants or tracky pants, is an Australian idiom. Um, you know, but then sometimes I think, how good's it going to be when I've got an excuse to wear my nice clothes not my not a suit you know no i'm not talking about suiting up just like dressing nicely how you would to go and see friends for example um but yeah you know this is coming to you from melbourne where we are in just lockdown city some of the strictest lockdowns in the world i think second only to somewhere in brazil melbourne where i am has just been we've just been shut up in our houses so I always say that thinking that it's the same all around the world, but it's kind of, no, it's just for me. <laughs> Everyone's had lockdowns, but we have had lockdowns. Um, anywho, uh, I like how Pierre is kind of, you know, um, not, uh, not even making the best of this situation. He's actually kind of thriving in this situation. Um, so let's continue, shall we? Chapter... 13. Book 13, Chapter 13. I hope you're not superstitious. The French evacuation began on the night between the 6th and the 7th of October. Kitchens and sheds were dismantled, carts loaded, and troops and baggage trains started. At 7 in the morning, a French convoy in marching trim, wearing shakos and, marry and carrying muskets, knapsacks, and enormous sacks. 
stood in front of the sheds and animated French talk mingled with curses sounded all along the lines. Excuse me. In the shed, everyone was ready, dressed, belted, shod, and only awaited the order to start. The sick soldier, Sokolov, pale and thin with dark shadows around his eyes, alone sat in his place barefoot and not dressed. His eyes, prominent from the emaciation of his face, gazed inquiringly at his comrades who were paying no attention to him, and he moaned regularly and quietly. It was evidently not so much his sufferings that caused him to moan, he had dysentery, as his fear and grief at being left alone. Pierre, girt with a rope round his waist and wearing shoes Karatev had made for him from some leather a French soldier had torn off a tea chest and brought to have his boots mended with, went up to the sick man and squatted down beside him. You know, Sokolov, they are not all going away. They have a hospital here. You may be better off than we others, said Pierre. Oh, Lord, it will be the death of me. Oh, Lord, moaned the man in a louder voice. I'll go and ask them again directly, said Pierre, rising and going to the door of the shed. Just as Pierre reached the door, the corporal who had offered him a pipe the day before came up to it with two soldiers. The corporal and soldiers were in marching kit with knapsacks and shakos that had metal straps and these changed their familiar faces. The corporal came according to orders to shut the door. The prisoners had to be counted before being let out. Corporal, what will they do with the sick man? Pierre began. But even as he spoke, he began to doubt whether this was the corporal he knew or a stranger, so unlike himself did the corporal seem at that moment. Moreover, just as Pierre was speaking, a sharp rattle of drums was suddenly heard from both sides. The corporal frowned at Pierre's words and, uttering some meaningless oaths, slammed the door. The shed became semi-dark and the sharp rattle of the drums on two sides drowned the sick man's groans. There it is, it again, said Pierre to himself, and an involuntary shudder ran down his spine. In the corporal's changed face, in the sound of his voice, in the stirring and deafening noise of the drums, he recognised that mysterious callous force which compelled against people against their will to kill their fellow men. That force, the effect of which he had witnessed during the executions, to fear or to try to escape that force, to address entreaties or exhortations to those who served as its tools, was useless. Pierre knew this now. One had to wait and endure. He did not again go to the sick man, nor turn to look at him, but stood frowning by the door of the hut. When that door was opened, and the prisoners crowding against one another like a flock of sheep squeezed into the exit, Pierre pushed his way forward and approached that very captain who, as the corporal had assured him, was ready to do anything for him. The captain was also in marching kit, and his old cold sorry, and his cold face appeared that same it which Pierre had recognized in the corporal's words and in the roll of the drums. Pass on, pass on, the captain reiterated, frowning sternly and looking at the prisoners who thronged past him. Pierre went up to him, though he knew his attempt would be vain. What now? the officer asked with a cold look as if not recognising Pierre. Pierre told him about the sick man. He'll manage to walk, devil take him, said the captain. Pass on, pass on. He... (coughs) Oh, excuse me. He continued without looking at Pierre. But he's dying, Pierre again began. 
be so good, shouted the captain, frowning angrily. Drum, da da dum, da dum, rattled the drums, and Pierre <clears throat> understood that this mysterious force completely controlled these men and that it was now useless to say any more. The officer prisoners were separated from the soldiers and told to march in front. There were about thirty officers, which Pierre among them, and about with Pierre among them, and about three hundred men. The officers who had come from the other sheds were all strangers to Pierre and much better dressed than he. They looked at him and at his shoes mistrustfully as at an alien. Not far from him walked the fat major with a sallow, bloated, angry face who was wearing a Kazan dressing gown tied round with a towel and who evidently enjoyed the respect of his fellow prisoners. He kept one hand in which he clasped his tobacco pouch inside the bosom of his dressing gown and held the stem of his pipe firmly with the other. Panting and puffing, the major grumbled and growled at everybody because he thought he was being pushed and that they were all hurrying when they had nowhere to hurry to and were all surprised at something when they were, there was nothing to be surprised at. Another, a thin little officer, was speaking to everyone, conjecturing where they were now being taken and how far they would get that day. An official in felt boots and wearing a commissariat uniform ran around from side to side and gazed at the ruins of Moscow, loudly announcing his observations as to what had been burned down and what this or that part of the city was that they could see. A third officer, who by his accent was a Pole, disputed with the commissariat officer arguing that he was mistaken in his identification of the different wards of Moscow. What are you disputing about, said the major angrily. What does it matter whether it is St. Nicholas or St. Balasius? You see it's burned down and there's the end of it. What are you pushing for? Isn't the road wide enough, said he, turning to a man behind him who was not pushing him at all. Oh, 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 what have they done? The prisoners on one side and another were heard saying as they gazed at the charred ruins. All beyond the river, the Zuboba and the Kremlin. Just look, there's not half of it left. Yes, I told you, the whole quarter beyond the river. And so it is. Well, you know it's burned, so what's the use of talking? said the Major. As they passed near a church in the Kamovniki, one of the few unburned quarters of Moscow, the whole mass of prisoners suddenly started to one side and exclamations of horror and disgust were heard. Oh, the villains, what heathens! Yes, dead, dead, so he is, and smeared with something. Pierre too drew near the church where the thing was that evoked these exclamations and dimly made out something leaning against the palings surrounding the church. From the words of his comrades who saw better than he did, he found that it was the body of a man set upright against the palings of its face, with its face smeared with soot. Go on. What the devil? Go on. Thirty thousand devils. The convoy guards began cursing, and the French soldiers, with fresh virulence, drove away with their swords the crowds of prisoners who were gazing at the dead man. All right, there we go. The soldiers, the prisoners, I should say, have been marched into the remains of Moscow, which has been burned, to find a corpse also smeared with soot, kind of reflecting the city around him. Whew, that's grim. All right, have your say about the chapter, and we'll continue tomorrow.